Welcome, welcome. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. We're moving verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. Hope at the King's Table is the title. I'm going to give you some headings as we move through the text. But before we do that, we're going to read the text. It's only a a handful of verses here. So if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? We're picking it up in Matthew 15, 21. Matthew 15, 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman, Matthew 15, 22, from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. You can have a seat. Heavenly Father, as we hear the sound of children, we can perhaps put ourselves in the sandals of this mom who was crying out for her daughter. And there's probably no love stronger on a human level than the love of a mom for a child or a dad for a child, especially a child in this sort of circumstance where just putting other um, pictures together from scripture and what we know had to be an unspeakable thing to watch and feel helpless. But Lord, there was a crying soul in the regions of Tyre and Sidon in Gentile territory And you heard that cry. And I believe that's why you were there. You had an appointment with a crying heart. There's some theology here that helps us understand that wherever there is a a seeker of the Lord, wherever there's a, a heart crying for salvation, you hear that cry. And you will dispatch an ambassador or... Do whatever you need to do, I believe, Lord, because you came to seek and to save that which was lost. We are so grateful for your heart for the nations. We're so grateful that Psalm 2 says, ask of me, the Father says to the Son, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. I pray that we would have a heart for people who are hurting, people who are broken, and maybe even people who are dominated by darkness that even our prayer trajectory this week would be, oh Lord, send me to a crying, broken heart that I might preach the good news of what's on the master's table and even the crumbs that fall from it. We love you, Lord. We lay this time at your feet, praying that you would be pleased in the way we teach and respond to your truth. I pray in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Hope at the master's table. So I'm going to try to give you some headings as we move through the text. The first heading is the significance of the placement of the text. If you're taking notes, the significance of the placement of this text. Now, it lands between two miracle feeding stories. One, we've studied previously where Jesus fed 5,000 plus women and children, and they picked up doggy bags, remember, 12 large baskets of leftovers. And yes, we're going to talk about dogs today a little bit. And we'll make slight mention of cats. Um, I've moved cats out of the atheist category into agnostics. So I'm, I'm getting softer towards cats. Okay, so there is hope. But anyway. But the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children, they picked up, do you remember how many? 12 baskets full of leftovers. 12, very significant in the life of Israel, 12 tribes. Of course, we have 12 apostles. And I believe the message there on a spiritual plane was, I can feed 
Israel's soul with the bread of life, the bread of the Messiah, if you will. He is the bread of life. Ahead of us, in the very next section ahead of us, verses 29 through 38, we're going to read of the feeding of 4,000. Mark tells us that the 4,000 miracle feeding plus women and children took place in what's called the Decapolis. That's the 10 cities very much dominated by pagan influence or Gentile influence. And after that feeding miracle, they picked up seven leftovers or seven doggy bags. And in Jewish history and in the Bible, seven represents the Gentile nations. And the picture is that I can bring the bread of life to the soul of the Jew, and also I can feed the soul of the Gentile. Now we know the Great Commission, Jesus is going to say, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So having a heart for the nations is very important. Psalm 2, where the Father says, I've installed my king prophetically, Jesus is pictured as asking the Father to give him the nations as his inheritance. He has a heart for the nations, and so should we. So here we are in a text where the placement includes the idea of feeding the Jew and Gentile with the spiritual bread. There's something else, and it's the, the setting is of the verses is preceded by uh, an account we taught last week. If you were with us last week, it was about what makes a person clean and unclean. The the Pharisees and scribes, verse 1, came to Jesus and challenged him uh, about the disciples not doing the ceremonial hand washing. Jesus gave a teaching on what makes a person clean and unclean. It's not the food you eat, it's what comes out of your heart, remember? He talked about your words and your behavior actually define you, and that's what defiles you, not whether or not you eat meat or vegetables or whatever it may be, or the the days of worship that you worship on. In Jewish thought, the things that could make you unclean were food, people who were considered unclean, dead bodies, traveling to Gentile lands and picking up the dirt on your sandals. That all could defile you. So you would have to go through some sort of ceremonial washing to be made clean. And uh, when Jesus gives the teaching, it's Peter in Matthew 15, 15, take a peek back, who said to him, explain the parable to us. This means like, explain the statement or the wisdom that you're giving. And Jesus said to Peter, and by extension, the disciples, are you still lacking in understanding also? And then he teaches about the truth of what makes one clean and unclean. Now, this will lead us into our story that where Jesus moves into this region of Tyre and Sidon, and it's considered unclean Gentile land. He's now outside the borders of Israel. Just a side note, if you're taking notes, this is the only time that Jesus moves beyond the borders of Israel in his earthly ministry. He did leave Israel when he was a baby, When he was little, his parents took him to Egypt, remember, to escape Herod's edict of trying to kill him. But other than that, Jesus' ministry was all in Israel. And some of you are thinking of the Samaritan woman, but even that exchange is within Israel proper. Samaria was the former capital of the northern kingdom, so he's still within Israel. But now he'll go to an unclean land, and it's very significant that Peter is the person that asks the question. And I would submit to you that there's a heart of a woman crying in that Gentile land for salvation. I want to just uh, show you something. If you peek back to the, the account where Peter walks on the water, this is Matthew 14, 30. Uh, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. Seeing the wind, Peter became frightened. He was beginning to sink and he cried out. What were his words? Lord, save me. There was a woman, I believe, in the Gentile territory that was also crying that cry. And Peter knew what it was like to be drowning. In another sense, this woman and specifically her daughter were drowning in evil. They were overwhelmed by the situation that was happening within their own household. And I believe that this mother probably was as desperate as you could imagine and probably spent a lot of time in prayer. We don't know how long this went on. We don't know how, what the age of the daughter was, but we do know it was a very, very scary uh, and helpless situation. And so Peter is going to be instrumental in what's ahead 
in our Bibles. If you flip over, just hold your place in Matthew to the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts chapter 10. There's a pivotal moment in the book of Acts and in church history, which I'll outline for you. We'll just read a couple verses here. So there's a man named Cornelius who's a Gentile centurion, and he's introduced to us in Acts 10.1. It says, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort. The uh, King James, I think, calls that the Italian band. This was the backup band for Sinatra uh, originally. <laughs> just so you guys know. Just, that's just a side note. Now notice, he was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, Acts 10.2, gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So pretty right on guy, right? About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, I would submit to you, here's another crying soul, a, a God seeker by category. Fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord, to the angel? He said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. God sees what you're doing, and he's, he's remembered it. Now dispatch some men to Joppa. Send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Now what happens is immediately, the centurion, uh, he grabs his most trusted guys, and he sends them off to get Peter. And Peter... Uh, the camera pans over to Peter, and Peter's up on a rooftop, and he's praying, and it's, it's, it's basically time for lunch. He's hungry, and, and the Bible says he falls into a trance, which is an interesting thing. It's like, what does that mean? Well, it would seem that the language means that Peter got as close to heaven, if you will, maybe as humanly possible. Uh, maybe the, the, the distance was closer, if I can put it on that human level. And God showed him in a vision, and this sheet, this by four corners, starts falling down from the sky. Some of you have read this account before. And it's filled with all these animals, reptiles, birds, clean and unclean animals. And a voice comes from heaven, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. I want you to kill clean and unclean animals. Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark seven nineteen. That's the section just before our text, Mark's version of it. And now God's showing him these foods. And he's saying, it's okay for you, Peter, to eat these foods. Now, Peter responds, they're not kosher, Lord. That stuff's not supposed to touch my lip, lips. I've never had a bologna sandwich, Lord. Are you saying it's okay? Now, the deeper lesson moves from the physical to the spiritual, from food to the soul. Because Peter is going to show up at the house of Cornelius after this vision happens three times to etch it into his soul, if you will. And he makes his way over. And there's a lot of detail in the story that we don't have time for today. But I want you to pick it up with me in verse 28 of Acts 10. He said to them, you yourselves know, he's about to enter the dwelling of Cornelius, how unlawful, and I would argue here unlawful according to the uh, rabbi's tradition, you know, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Do you see the lesson that Peter got? It, it, it links to our text in Matthew 15. It links to who can be saved. It's not your pedigree. It's not what family you were born into. It's not where you live. It's not whether you live in the U.S., Israel, Pakistan, Africa. Any heart that wants to come to the Lord can come. And this is what happens now. So Cornelius is talking to Peter, and he says, he tells him about the angel and all of that, verse, dropping down to verse 33. He says, so I sent you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we're all here, all of Cornelius' household servants, etc., present before God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now. Remember, Jesus said, you don't even get this? That God, has not, God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching 
uh, through preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And then Peter will go on to preach the gospel and the events that occurred in the Passion of the Christ in Jerusalem. Back to Matthew chapter 15. I believe that when Jesus moves to the Gentile lands of Tyre and Sidon, this is a faith lesson for Peter and for the 12. These are the men who are going to cross the borders of Israel and go into different lands. The Apostle Paul, who was Saul, will go to Europe. And by extension, Europe gets the gospel where? To where you live now. So the gospel is for all nations. That's the only reason that we're saved. If you're a, a non-Jew sitting in here today, you're born in America, maybe you have whatever your descent may be, whatever your ethnicity may be, it's really irrelevant. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ is the God of the whole world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The Jews were entrusted with the scriptures to bring forth the Messiah, and to have salvation go out originally from them. But God always had it in his heart for Jew and Gentile to be one in Jesus. Now Jesus, and he doesn't do anything by accident, right? So now he leaves Israel, uh, the borders of Israel, and he went away, 21, right after this exchange and his teaching, his, the exchange with the uh, religious leaders and his teaching of the group. Jesus went away, Matthew 15, 21, from there and withdrew into the district notice or the region of Tyre and Sidon. So we'll put up a, a map for you to take a look here. So if you were at Gennesaret where the exchange happened between Jesus and the religious leadership and you traveled northwest of the Sea of Galilee, you'd be moving towards the Mediterranean coast and you'd, you'd enter into the land of ancient Phoenicia. If you were walking, uh, it probably, I don't know how long it would take you, but it's about 25 to 30 miles to get to this region from where Jesus was. So pretty long walk. And then probably another, if, if he landed in uh, Sidon, it would be probably another, I'd say, or entire, it'd probably be another 25 miles or so to get up to Sidon. We know he was in the region. There are some scholars that believe that he's in the foothills uh, of that area for the climate and trying to get away, at least have a little moment of respite. And this is the place, uh, the regions of Tyre and Sidon on the Mediterranean coast. It's uh, the area now of modern-day Lebanon. And so Jesus is here, and just a little bit of history on these areas. There are several prophecies that are articulated against Tyre in the book of Isaiah, in Ezekiel 26 and 28. One of those prophecies is actually interesting because it's one of the two places where scholars, majority of scholars believe, is a prophecy against Satan. It mentions musical instruments and the like. And it seems to move from the king of Tyre to Satan himself. That's a little bit debated, but it's a prophecy against the nation of Tyre, being pompous, being lifted up, being prideful. And God says, I'm going to deal with you. You could look at Ezekiel 26, 28, and a lot of other places. So this was a, a nation that was often an enemy of Israel and definitely in uh, what we would call unclean Gentile land. Notice also the region has Sidon in it or Sidon. Uh, this was also an enemy of ancient Israel. And one famous person that hails from this place is Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. You can read that in 1 Kings 11. And she was influenced by Sidonian worship. And that worship included the worship of gods, false gods and goddesses, high places, the occult, child sacrifice, and Jezebel's influence on Israel was so strong that she got Ahab basically to make high places to Baal and all these false gods. And the nation went into the tank because of Jezebel's influence. So a Israelite traveling to Tyre and Sidon is not going to have warm fuzzies about these two areas, right? These are not areas that you'd want to go necessarily and you know be there, especially if you had the mindset that Potentially, they would make you unclean. But Jesus is here. He's withdrawn here, but he has a mission. Mark 7, 24, 25. Mark has a parallel account, puts it this way. From there, 
Jesus arose, went away, Mark 7, 24, to the region of Tyre. When he had entered a house, this is important to put in your pocket for right now. The uh, scene takes place apparently in a house, according to Mark. He wanted no one to know of it. He was trying to get away, yet he could not escape notice. This was the life of Jesus. Wherever he went, you know, he couldn't escape notice. After hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter, what did, what did the little daughter have, according to Mark? She had an unclean spirit. Once again, we come back to the ideas of clean and unclean. Immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, we'll look at this more in a moment, but we're going to uh, anchor ourselves back in Matthew 15. We'll look at verse 22. Let's look at the woman and her situation. If you're taking notes, we looked at the placement of the text. We looked at the land, the location. Now let's look at the situation. Behold, verse 22, a Canaanite woman. Now Matthew uses the ancient description of that land or of someone who would be from uh, the land of Canaan, even though we're in Tyre and Sidon. He describes her as a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out. Let's pause right there for a second. Now, Mark calls her Syrophoenician, a combination of Syrian and from Phoenicia. Syria was uh, a Roman province of, at the time. But uh, Matthew, writing to a primarily a Jewish audience, calls her a Canaanite. Now, today, you guys all know that there's a big controversy about the land of Israel. And if you pull up a map today of the land of Israel, what you'll see is really interesting. You'll see a good portion of that sliver of land is called the West Bank. And some of you, out of curiosity, have looked up where Gaza is. And Gaza is down south, and it's on the Mediterranean coast. And it's just a little sliver of land. And this is where all these eruptions have begun. And now there's stuff happening in Lebanon and, and you know, there's the, the Houthis and uh, the Iran-backed, uh, you know, uh, groups and all of this stuff. And, you know, people are trying to figure out all of this. And then people are debating who has a right to the land. So let's just rewind the tape for a second. Originally, the promised land was called the land of Canaan, Right? And that land was inhabited before Israel ever got there by a group of ites, Jebusites, Hittites, Hivites, Amorites, Coronites, just kidding. And Israel was told to go to that land and conquer it and warned by God, you can write down if you're, if you're interested, Deuteronomy 13 and 18, but many other places, Deuteronomy 13 and 18, not to mimic the detestable practices of those people. What were they practicing? The occult, witchcraft, child sacrifice. They had priestesses and priests. There were some abominable things that they were up to. And Israel was told, don't do what they do because what they do is the reason I'm booting them out of the land. Maybe you've talked to a friend and people say to you, what right did Israel have to the land in the first place? There were other people there. Aren't Israel occupiers? Well, Israel was given the land and Israel was a tool of God's judgment on the Canaanite people. The Canaanites are the big general term for all these other ites, if you will. Are you with me? Israel was the tool that God used to judge the land of Canaan. Just like God used Nebuchadnezzar later of Babylon to judge his own people because they were in trouble with idolatry and sin. So they go and they go into the land and to have a Canaanite come up is about, you know, if you're gonna be this way is about repulsive as you can imagine. I don't want anything to do with that person. Why are we in this land? I'm sure the disciples were asking all kinds of questions and maybe murmuring about why are we here and what's going on? But Jesus is making a point. There are people everywhere who need me. And wherever there's a crying heart, I will go. Maybe you're here and you have a crying heart and you have found yourself, maybe you're watching, and you found yourself in this context where you never thought you would be. And, and you're like, why am I here? And what's going on? Why do I feel this undeniable tug? Because there's an answer at the master's table. Amen? That's why he came. 
He came to bring life to a world uh, in darkness and sin. And so the woman began to cry out, 22, and she said, very simple prayer, but very profound, profound, have mercy on me, O Lord. What does she call him? Son of David. How is a Canaanite woman calling Jesus by the Jewish messianic title of son, son of David? Here's the irony, and it's thick. The religious leaders will not acknowledge him as the Messiah, but a Canaanite woman will. She will call him what they, they won't. They're attributing his miracles to Satan, to the power of Beelzebub, and she's calling him son of David, and she lives in Tyre and Sidon. It sometimes seems that those who are on the outside are hungering for things that we possess on the inside, and we take them for granted. Amen? And we as Americans, let's face it, we got a lot. And sometimes, just by way of material possessions, we're whining about what we don't have, like, I really want that third car and, you know, whatever else. And people from the outside just wish that they had some of our crumbs. You know what I'm saying? A little bit of our leftovers. So she cries out. She says, have mercy on me. She had to be devastated by what was going on, calls him by the Jewish title of Messiah and describes her daughter as being cruelly demon-possessed. This woman describes her daughter as severely demon-possessed, the ESV says. The NIV describes the situation as terrible. The New Living calls it a life filled with torment things were really bad. Let me give you a parallel example, and I know that most of you are familiar with it. In Mark 9, uh, a, a father brings his son to the disciples, and he asks for the, a demon to be cast out of his son. And the disciples can't cast it out. And so Jesus, the, the family comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long must I put up with you? Bring the child to me. And when Jesus tells the, the spirit to get out of him, the, the kid becomes like a, a, a corpse, a board, and he's convulsing, and the people standing there say, he's dead, he's dead, and Jesus says, no. But before that, he challenges the dad, and do you remember what the dad says? I believe, but help my unbelief. This is in Mark 9. The dad says that what was happening to the son is that the, the spirit would throw the child into water, and oftentimes into open fires to try to destroy him. Can you imagine the horror of trying to keep your son in a bubble when an unseen demonic spirit is doing this kind of damage to him? What a nightmare. Now, some of you are sitting here, and I realize that this is a, an, an area where there may be some doubt in your heart or whatever, but I'll tell you this. The Bible is filled with these kinds of realities there are scores of stories from the mission field, from missionaries. And I've even run into it a couple times personally. And I'll quote my hero, Walter Martin. I wouldn't cross the street to deal with it because it's ugly and often scary. But this is what is going on. And I wonder, this is just me sharing a thought with you about what may be going on in the backdrop. I wonder if this mom had dabbled in witchcraft or a seance, or something with her religion. She went up to a high place and burned incense to false gods and goddesses, maybe called on spirits, and maybe her daughter paid the price, which would make her uh, cry even more desperate, make the weight of what she was feeling even more difficult. And so she approaches the Lord, and she cries out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. It's my daughter. She's cruelly demon-possessed. So here's Jesus. And this response uh, of Jesus shocks many people. I'll explain in a moment, but I just want to give you one other side note for those of you who are interested. You might wonder, how did they find out all this stuff about what the pagan peoples worshipped in these areas? There was a discovery uh, by a farmer in 1928. We hear about the Dead Sea Scrolls. You may not have heard of this before. 
1928, they made a discovery of what's called the Ugaritic Scrolls, which depicted pagan religion in the area of Syria and other places and gave us insights into how they worshiped and what they worshiped. In fact, the main god they say that stayed in the background was a false god named El, E-L. Their main god besides El was Baal, and he was in different locations. Uh, He had relations with this goddess. I think it was Asher or Ashtoreth. And then there was 70 other uh, deities, false gods and goddesses named in the Ugaritic text. So we got some insight about what they believed, how they worshiped. They would talk about their festivals, their priests and priestesses, and what they were up to. And while some of it might just be like the normal things that you would expect in many religions, others, other aspects of it were lewd and abominable, and I won't go, get into more details. I think you understand. Practices that the Lord said Israel had no business being involved in. And so this woman, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman, according to Mark 7, 26, kept asking the Lord. It wasn't just once. She kept crying out, Lord, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. Have mercy. Now, this is my own personal view. I told you it takes place in a house. And if it's still there, it's possible that the disciples have finally gotten to sat down, sit down for a meal. And it must have been hard even finding time to eat with Jesus, right? So maybe they got some lamb chops in front of them, side of broccoli, little, little chocolate pie for dessert. And they're ready to break in, sniffing it. And all, and all of a sudden, oh, Lord, son of David, have mercy. My daughter's cruelly demon-possessed. Lord, have mercy. Lord. Now, the very spiritual apostles responded. You'll see their answer in verse 23. They said, send her away. She keeps shouting after us. Get rid of her. Now, I know none of you have ever had a moment like that, as spiritual as you may be, where finally you made a Special cheese pizza just for you. You set it before you. You're sniffing it. You're ready to take that first bite and ding dong or text comes or the phone rings and you're like, ah! No! I think that's the disciples. They're like, can't we go anywhere? We're out of Dodge and they still find us. We're entire. We're in some God-forsaken pagan land and still they know where we are. There's no GPS. What's going on? (laughs) And the Lord, on top of that, and this is what throws some people a curveball, he didn't answer her a word. He let her cry. And what do we make of his silence? This is one of several things in the account that troubles some people. Is he ignoring her? Is he rejecting her? Is it possible that he was waiting to see what the 12 would do? In other words, ding dong, you going to get that? No. (laughs) I'm about to dig into these lamb chops. You get it. No, you get it. It's kind of like when the Jehovah's Witness, you know, (laughs) you're pulling the blinds down. I got my burrito, my burrito. Maybe he was quiet to see what they would do. After all, these are the guys after he dies on the cross and resurrects that are going to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's see if they've learned a lesson. Let's see if Peter has figured out the clean and unclean thing. But all they can do is say, get rid of her. And they put it on Jesus. Notice what they say. She's shouting after us. No, she wasn't shouting after you. She was calling out to the Messiah. Yeah, but we're here, and it's troubling. And she keeps doing it. It's annoying. Get rid of her. Psalm 39, verse 12 says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. For I'm a stranger with thee, a sojourner like all my fathers. Now, I've been reading a lot 
through the first 30 Psalms lately, and many times I watch David say, Lord, where are you? Lord, have you forgotten me? Lord, don't you hear my prayer? Silence is not rejection. Wiersbe says, Jesus was not trying to destroy her faith, but develop it. Because without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. For one who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six. So, Jesus' silence is not a rejection, but sometimes we've got to persevere. We've got to keep pushing on doors. We've got to keep praying. We've got to keep seeking, asking, and knocking, Matthew 7. Faith, biblical faith, will always have an obstacle. It might be giants. It might be rivers. It might be a Red Sea. It might be dark powers, whatever it may be. Faith will have an obstacle that you have to cross over. We walk by faith and not by sight. It would be wonderful if we could just ask and immediately it was right there, wouldn't it? Oh, Lord, I want this. Bam. Lord, I want this. Bam. Lord, I, well, that's, that's what most of us want until we realize that many of our prayers were grateful that it didn't drop from heaven right at that point. Amen? See, we don't, we don't really want to have to work for it or walk out our faith. No, that's too much to ask. I, I want instantaneous. I go to the drive-thru. I don't know why they ever put that clock there. Do they still have the clocks? I order a burrito and I'm like, did they go to Mexico to make that burrito? What's going <laughs> Just got me in the flesh. He's quiet and the disciples are saying, get rid of her. What do you think she thinks of the faith? Oh, what a wonderful welcome to the world of Christianity. <laughs> Get her out of here. No, no, no word from Jesus. Oh, God help us, right? I hope our churches aren't that way. I don't think they are, but. And so he answered and said, and if you read commentaries, they will, the bulk of them will say, his answer is to the disciples because they're asking to get rid of her. And he said, 24. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now that sounds like a very exclusive claim. And it sounds like perhaps he's not going to do anything for her. Notice he calls Israel what? Lost sheep. Now just so you know, to be compared to a sheep is not a wonderful, uh, you know, compliment. Sheep are about the dumbest animals on the planet. And a lost sheep is even worse. There are stories of sheep who will follow one another off cliffs, into open fires. Uh, they're not smart. And they have no natural defenses against predators. They are really weak. So to be compared to a dog, especially as we're going to learn in a moment, a house dog is not a bad thing. In fact, some of you have gone so far, because you are dog lovers, to say, you compare yourself to a breed. I'm like a, you know, I'm like a, a whatever, Irish setter. I'm a, I'm a great Dane. I'm a chihuahua. <laughs> you quiero taco bear? You know. When we, we have a little dog named Sage, and she's 12 years old now, and she doesn't leave my side. And part of the reason she doesn't leave my side is she knows how soft I am. And so she'll put her little head on my leg while I'm eating a meal and her eyes get big and she's, and I think she would wait there for six months just to get a crumb. When we first got her, we got her from the Riverside shelter and I took her back to get some shots a little bit later and I had her with me and they, originally they said, shepherd mix, she'll be about 65 pounds. Well, Sage was mixed with something else because she ended up about 35 pounds and she's small. And I went in there to get, her shots, and they said, Sage, shepherd mix, and this kid was sitting there, he's like, <laughs> that's no shepherd mix, come on, and Sage was like, <laughs> so Jesus says, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, this is Jeremiah 50, verse 6, my people have become lost sheep, 
Jeremiah 50, verse 6. Their shepherds have led them astray. They've made them turn aside on the mountains. They've gone along from mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. Earlier in chapter 10, some of you are recalling this, Jesus told the 12, Matthew 10, 5 through 7, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What are we to make of this? Is Jesus saying that we're not to reach out to Gentiles? No, because why would he be in the land of Tyre and Sidon if he didn't have a heart for the Gentiles? Why did Peter go to the house of Cornelius? Well, there's an order here. And when Jesus first came, he focused his ministry on the Jew. To the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. So that was the order that Jesus is focused on. Think about it. Today, Jew and Gentile make up the one church and most of the people, sadly, flooding into the church are Gentiles. So obviously Jesus doesn't have an exclusive heart for Israel, but he's starting with the lost sheep of Israel because, of course, they were his elect nation or his channel by which Messiah would come, etc. So after all of this, the woman doesn't give up. She may have entered the house at this point because verse 25 says, but she came and began to bow down before him. And again, her simple prayer, Lord, help me. She's at his feet. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. An act of humility, perhaps an act of worship, a very simple prayer, Lord, help me. When we studied the... Uh, first storm when Jesus is sleeping on the boat. Mark's version of that uh, story, I think it's Mark 4.38, says that the disciples wake him up in the middle of the storm and it's hurricane force winds and the, bo the boat is flooding with water. And they say, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Now, right after that, he calms the storm. They end up on the other side. And where do they go? Do you remember? A place called the Gadarenes and they meet two demon-possessed men. I suggested to you that at least one of those men was on the other side of the lake saying, Lord, don't you care that I am perishing? Would you cross the sea for me? And I suggested to you that there's a potential link in the words of the disciples and in the lucid moments of the man who had legion crying out, don't you know if there is a God, help me, save me. Don't you care that I'm being dominated and destroyed by this, these demonic forces? Lord, don't you care that I'm perishing? And of course, he got in the boat. He was in the boat to go and save them, and he did. And so Jesus has the woman at his feet, and this is the first time he speaks to her, and he says, 26, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, here's where people get offended. Are you calling me a dog? <laughs> what kind of dog? <laughs> Some of you call your friends dog. But we won't go there. What's going on here? And, you know, there's been pages and pages written on trying to explain the metaphor because it doesn't seem like a very kind one. But is it possible, think with me, if they're in a house and a meal is being served, that there's little doggies, house dogs, because that's what the word is here. It's not the scavengers that, you know, went around like coyotes in packs. This is a word for a house dog or a little dog. Is it possible that when she got to his feet, maybe there was a meal on the table and maybe the little dogs were sitting there? <laughs> you know, just waiting for a little crumb to fall. And she's at his feet, at the foot of the table, if you will, and she's saying something like this, I'll be one of them if I can get one of your crumbs. I'll take the crumbs. Amen? Now that's faith. You give me the leftovers, I'll take them. Jesus often used the immediate surroundings for his teaching and metaphors. And so it's possible, I'm not going to be dogmatic on it, that that's what's going on here. Some of you may be thinking, well, how did she even hear about Jesus to begin with? This is Mark 3, 7, and 8. We'll put it up on the screen. 
Mark 3, 7, and 8. We're winding down. And Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, also from Judea. And from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of what? Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude heard of all that Jesus was doing and came to him. Jesus' fame had spread into Gentile lands as well. People were flocking to Israel to be touched by him, to hear his teaching. And then they were taking it back. Perhaps that's how she heard. But it was a wonderful day to be crying out and all of a sudden somehow learn, guess what? Messiah's having dinner at that house. That guy you've been hearing about, he's here. Can you imagine? I mustered up the courage. <laughs> I'm going. Now, rabbis were not supposed to address any woman who wasn't their wife or their mother. But Jesus crossed those boundaries all the time, right? I think he's just trying to develop her faith. And she knocked on the door and she bowed at his feet. And Mark 7, 27, I think, illuminates the priority that Jesus is getting at. This is Mark 7, 27. I hope we have it on the screen. He was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. Notice the order. For it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now we know how children are. If they don't like something and a dog is around, broccoli, <laughs> here you go, Fido. And I've been guilty of giving my dog all manner of different treats. Sweet things, vegetables, you name it. Here you go. Because <laughs> I'm soft and she knows it. There's an order. Two uh, verses that clarify in the letters or the epistles. Romans 1, 16 through 18 reads this way. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's all about faith, responding to it. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Could we write scribes and Pharisees right there? I think we might. Galatians 3, 26 through 29, one other clarifying theological truth. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The gospel is for everybody. The Samaritan woman, after sharing her encounter with Jesus, they responded to her. We've come to know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. Much more could be said, but I think that uh, will help us understand. And she said, yes, Lord, that's right about what you said about the children eating their bread first. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master or Lord's table. The dogs get some too. And I'm willing to put myself in that position if you will just minister to my need. I will humble myself. And Jesus said to her, Oh, woman, your faith is mega. <laughs> That's the literal Greek word. Your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. She persevered. Persevering faith. She kept pushing on the door. She kept asking, seeking, and knocking. The scene is a foretaste of the messianic banquet when people from all nations will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Mark fills in the gap, Mark 7, 29 and 30. He said to her, because of this answer, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. Oh, glory. Oh, joy. Oh, praise. Oh, hallelujah. To go home after watching this child devastated by an unseen demonic force and to know with a word 
he delivered her. To see her smile, to see her, the sparkle in her eye return, to see this dominating, domineering force be done away with, to have her be free. How many tears do you think were cried on that day? How many songs of salvation were sung? How many people around the neighborhood were told of this amazing story? What testimony, what glory. That's what this is about. Praise God. Good time for a hallelujah. Some years ago, I found myself crying out in a similar way. I found myself on a bed saying, Lord, I've made a mess of my life. Have mercy. You know, the Lord showed up because he's good and he has a big heart for crying hearts. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for this amazing story of this Canaanite woman and how you interacted with her is layered and beautiful. And ultimately, Lord, I think her position before you, her request. All along, you knew what you were going to do. We don't have to be troubled by the exchange here. We can celebrate because the only reason you left Israel was for this one situation. There is no record that you did anything else in Tyre and Sidon. You went to the one. You left the 99 and you went to the one. And then you went back to the land of Israel. The Bible tells us, Lord, that heaven and the angels rejoice when one sinner, just one, comes home, comes to repentance. Oh God, thank you that you're the God who hears the cries of people all over the world. And you're faithful to dispatch the message in one way or the other. And thank you that we can be ambassadors of that message of hope. And whether we're a person crying out in our heart today or whether we're perhaps a seasoned Christian who wants to be more active in evangelism, lead us to crying hearts this week. I just want to end this prayer with this word to any crying heart. Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Acknowledge him for who he is. Tell him, son of David, Jesus, Messiah, I believe in you. I believe in who you are and that you came to save me. Lord, I have sensed a life without you being dark and unfulfilling. Perhaps you'd say I've made a mess of things, but I'm crying out, save me, Lord. The simple prayer of this Canaanite woman, oh, Lord, save me. Tell him you believe that he lived the perfect life for you, died on the cross, rose from the dead. Turn away from trying to do it yourself. Trust in his finished work at the cross. He is a prayer away. And I would encourage you and plead with you. Call upon him while he is near. He's here. And he still is saving people all over the world. Cry out to him. You'll find life in his name. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer. I know you know every heart, so I pray that you administer to every need in this room. And I pray that in Jesus' matchless and mighty name. Amen.